0: showtime sports presents showtime boxing with eric raskin and kieran mulvaney hello
1: and welcome to another edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney with my co-host eric raskin i am kieran mulvaney um we record this on sunday which is the last day of my long journey away from home Uh, when i left home eric yeah anyway it was the uncontested pound for pound number one, and Donald Trump was facing only two indictments. That's how long I've been gone. But I'll tell you what. One thing was true when I left, and it's true now. The Bear, dude. Best show on TV. Uh, I, I think you were the one who recommended it to me. And I've taken advantage. I saw season one before I left. I've taken advantage of downtime on this trip to rip through season two. Lordy, lordy, that is some absolutely fantastic quality drama. It is not always comfortable. oh my goodness that is is great good recommendation
2: all right well i I, i'm really happy that you have finished both seasons of this show and we can now discuss it openly unlike in vegas when you had seen the first season but not the second and we were talking to uh dan the pr guy and uh he, he brought it up and he and i were being very coded with like Episode seven. Oh, my God. Uh, You know, until you walked away and we could uh, we could speak more openly. But so, you know, you and I will still be spoiler free on the podcast, but um, privately we can now discuss it openly at least. And, uh, yeah, it it is just the best. It is on a whole other level than everything else on TV right now. Yeah. Except Showtime shows, of course. All all Showtime shows. Of course. Of course. All Showtime shows are tied for number one. And then the bear is number two. And indeed
1: all Showtime ancillary products, shoulder programming, podcasts, for example, and then The Bear and then
2: everything else. Right, right. Uh, Yes, that is the proper ranking. And I have to say, you know, at the risk of annoying the hell out of you and everyone else, The Bear is the best non-Showtime show since Breaking Bad. And season two of The Bear was the best season of TV, non-Showtime division since the final season of Breaking Bad. Um, I I have a serious question for you here, Kieran. Now now that you've experienced how I recommended something as great and it proved indeed to be great, what percentage of your refusal to watch Breaking Bad is due to personal disinterest? And what percentage is spite, just wanting to see me get worked up and exasperated? 100% spite. (laughs) Okay. All right. So I'm not sure whether I should feel better about that or worse about that. I guess better. It means it means that it's not that the show doesn't interest you at all. It's just personal. We can maybe overcome at this point
1: (laughs) at this point. It's a little like if you're a PC user and and an (laughs) Apple user is like, oh, my God, you have to use Apple products. It's so much better. And you decide to just spend 30 years only using uh, <laughs> non-Apple products just out of spite. It's a, little, it's a little like that. I can see a situation where I actually start quietly watching Breaking mm-hmm. Bad without mm-hmm. telling you about it right? and watch all of it and see how I feel about it. And, <laughs> and then after it's done, maybe just casually start dropping references into conversation.
2: <laughs> That's actually a kind of a fun approach. Don't let me actually get any enjoyment out of you watching it until it's all over. There you go. Um, coming up on this podcast,
1: we will look at the latest news and views, and uh, we'll recap Anthony Joshua's knockout of Robert Hellenius, Emmanuel Navarrete's win over Oscar Valdez, and another Emmanuel Rodriguez winning a Showtime Championship Boxing main event. But let's start with our interview. And... If our guest this week isn't presently the happiest man in boxing, he should certainly be up there after the year that he has had. It is, of course, the president of sports and live event programming for Showtime, Stephen Espinosa. Stephen, thank you for joining us again on the podcast.
0: Are, are there happy men in boxing? Are there happy people in boxing? <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We, we could probably spend the entire
2: half hour or so that we're going to be talking to you debating the answer to that question. Are there happy people in boxing? Wow.
0: I'll Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, though. I I would say, relatively speaking, we're we're very happy with what's been happening with us.
2: uh, So so let me start with uh, something that you're uh, probably happy about. Uh, Two weeks have passed since Terrence Crawford's tremendous performance against Errol Spence. And my first question here is a a pretty open-ended one. After all the effort to put the fight together, after the disappointment of it falling through last year, how do you feel about the build-up, the event, and the fight itself. Would, would I be correct to assume you feel it was worth every gray hair and sleepless night?
0: Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Look, we we all expected a more competitive fight, or I I, I think the vast majority of, of us expected a more competitive fight. But um, notwithstanding that, it, it was a fight that needed to be happened. It was important for the sport. It was important, most importantly, to the two participants who each very much wanted this to happen. Um, and really, I I think in many ways, um, bent over backwards to make sure it happened. Um, you know, one, one of the things, uh, you know, that, was disappointing is some of the narratives after the fight about, you know, this is why, you know, one side avoided the other, uh, you know, the reality, no, nobody avoided anybody. Um, you know, there were some promotional obstacles in the way early on. Then there were some legitimate disagreements over the deal that sort of delayed it um, and made it a complicated negotiation. But certainly by the time you get to fight night and you see all the excitement, you see the outpouring of, of anticipation and enthusiasm, um, then it, it's all worth it. And, and that's always the case. If you ask me a week before an event... Is it worth it? Um, I will probably say it's wrong time to ask me. But when you ask me, you know, after having experienced the excitement of fight day and fight night and everything that goes along with that, then, yes, absolutely worth worth every sleepless night.
2: And you started your answer with the, the one thing that people could be disappointed about, that they expected uh, a real even back and forth kind of battle and didn't get that. But is it still satisfying on another level the one-sided fight that, that we got from your perspective satisfying in that we have a new boxing superstar you're able to parade him on cbs mornings and other mainstream outlets is 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 there a significant upside to that in your view
0: oh yeah absolutely look um it, it was a, a a masterful performance by terence Crawford. that certainly isn't to take away any from that anything from that and there's a lot to enjoy in that um you know obviously spence fans were disappointed, uh, but they can't be disappointed with his effort, with his determination, his persistence, um, you know, and all that. So look, it was for a relatively one-sided fight. There was a lot of action. There was a lot of drama. There was a lot of emotion. So uh, I think notwithstanding, you know, it wasn't as competitive as people thought. It still paid off in a very meaningful way. And we got to see a virtuoso performance that, that you rarely get to see in this sport we're all around
1: fighters quite a lot you more than most people especially during fight week and at the tail end of fight week I'm always trying to pick up on little subtle cues that that might help us figure out what's going on did you get any sense from either camp that something like what happened on Saturday night might be possible or as you kind of hinted earlier were you like us fully
0: expecting a pretty even back and forth um you know in in retrospect. No, I, I really didn't see anything. I mean, it's easy to sort of uh hyper analyze, you know, Errol's his moods or his energy level or his speech patterns or all the silliness that goes on. Um, but no, I, I didn't see anything. Look um Errol is is always been a sort of relatively reserved, laid-back guy. He's got the, you know, the Texas draw. Um, you know, he doesn't show a lot of emotion. It's really hard to get a rise out of him. Um so like, I, I didn't see anything, you know, anything different um, in, his, uh, in, in his presentation all week. I would say the, the one thing um, that did strike me, and I'm not saying that this was meaningful in the fight or, uh, you know, was a termination, um, and, and I said it to a few people, um, you know, I happened to be in one of the hallways um, when, when Crawford was entering. Um, when he was literally walking from his, uh, the back of the the arena from the loading dock into his locker room, so he just gone to the arena, and usually, look, uh, the event had just started, and you know, there's p- people milling around. Part of that hallway is a public area; part of it is is off limits, restricted. And I I saw something that I rarely, if if ever, have seen. I, I don't think I've, I ever recall this. Um, when he came through, there was such an intensity. You know, in his demeanor, that it sort of you could feel, you could hear a, a pin drop in that hallway. And usually, you know, there's people scurrying around, there's security, there's people entering, there's people, you know, there's the, you know, there's concession lines, there's people, you know, all kinds of activity going on. But it really felt like as he walked by, there was just a, a, a an intensity that that just quieted everybody in the hallway as they, as they walked past, it was sort of a different experience. I mean, usually people will stop and take pictures or, you know, clear away, but there wasn't that sense of, you know, just sheer actual silence that, that you know, that that sort of as he walked through in his whole camp, they were all intense, um, you know, and maybe that was a clue to what might was, what, what was going to happen shortly. Mm. Uh, um Um. As we understand it, and please
1: correct us if we're wrong, Errol has the right to activate a rematch clause. Is there a timeline by which he has to do that? And have you yet had any sense about whether he plans to do that?
0: Um, yeah, there is. There is a timeline. Um, it's a. It's a. You know, pretty standard uh, period of. Um, you know, after the fight, and you know, look, I don't want to. I don't want to disclose too many of the behind the scenes conversations. Um, sure. Just um, you know, there are all the conversations you would think of. I mean, errol has been very um very open, you know, his competitive nature, you know, he he won't say it. He's not gonna make an excuse. He doesn't do that publicly or privately. Um, but you know, I I you know I know he wasn't satisfied with his performance and combine that with his competitive, he's always gonna say, Yeah, give me the rematch. But there have also been a lot of um a lot of conversations um about you know sort of was that performance which seemed out of character was it the result of just a you know a really sharp uh terence crawford was it weight drained was it other physical challenges was it just an off night um you know all of those things are are are, are happening so it's very much up in the air at this point point. and
1: is your what's the situation with terence is your expectation that even if there isn't a rematch that there's some other fight that terence's next fight will be on showtime pay-per-view or is that tbd
0: um i certainly hope so um you know there isn't anything in place with him formally but um i'd like to think that um you know from what and uh, not just what i think but i we've heard that he um had a good experience on on the pay-per-view that he was you know happy with uh with the promotion and, you know, the way his first experience with with Showtime and PPC. Um, and there's plenty of, of opponents. So I think, you know, I think staying put probably makes the most sense from where I sit, um, both because of the variety of opponents and because he seemed to have an experience, which I think has worked out pretty well for him.
2: Well, the next uh, major pay-per-view on the calendar is The Return of the King, uh, Canelo Alvarez taking on Jermel Charlo. Now, most of us assumed that it would be Jermal, uh, And then we had Derek James on the podcast uh, several weeks back, and he told us it was pretty much always planned to be Jermel. Uh, is that true? And, and, and if so, how much did you enjoy sitting back and watching the media bark up the wrong tree, knowing the, the big surprise that you were preparing <laughs> to drop on us?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly look uh, Jamal's got a lot going on, um, you know, in, in his personal life. So um, this opportunity came up, and there were on my questions: is Is he going to be in a place where he can he won't be distracted and is able to commit his full energy to the fight and and present himself in the best way he can? And you know, the answer was you know probably you know no, given all the things that are going on um in his personal life. So yeah, there was there was certainly a um certainly a lot of I'm not sure I, I would say it's definitely Jamel, you know, way, way in advance, but there was definitely from the very start a very good possibility. And as time went by, it became more and more clear that it probably Jamel was going to be it. So um by the time everybody started uh reporting and and there are one or two in particular who who reported, you know, definitively it would be Jermall, Um, you know, we told them, you know, we told them very honestly and openly, uh, it's not yet determined, you know, um, and it hasn't been announced for a reason. And you know, it still was sort of it wasn't rock solid either way until it sort of was. Um, but you know, certainly there's enough certainty when people call and say, Look, I'm I'm gonna go with Jermall. And, and you know, our response to them was you probably shouldn't because you know we're not going to say all the interior all the, the the sort of internal discussions but it's certainly not yet determined you know there are those who went out and decided to report it anyway because they thought they knew better than us and they've got egg on their faces but um you know that's uh that's that's the danger in reporting on speculation rather than actual fact right
2: now now jermel will be the underdog in the fight but how live a dog do you view him as and i realize by asking this question, I'm kind of turning you into Al Bernstein or Abner Mares. Uh, but you, you know, you've, you've watched enough boxing. You can break it down a little bit. How, how live a dog uh, do you see him as?
0: Well, you know, um, I'll go back, you know, Steve Farhood and I were, were going back and forth and talking about this in, in there were, you know, Steve, as, as he often does, he puts together a list and, and he had put together a list of um, over the last few decades, you know, as comprehensive, um, you know, as, as he usually operates, um, the list of fighters who had been either successful or unsuccessful in jumping up at, at least two weight divisions, you know, there was, um, you know, Canelo against Kovalev, there was Tank against Barrios, there were, um, you know, even Broner went from 135 to 47 for Pauly, um, there was Manny Pacquiao and De La Hoya, um, You can go back to Michael Spinks and Larry Holmes. Um, All of those were, uh, you know, were were successful, by the way. Um, And then there's unsuccessful. There was, you know, Kell Brook tried to go up from 47 to 60 uh, against Golovkin. Uh, Amir Khan tried to go to 47 to 60 against Canelo. Um, Juan Manuel Marquez went from 135 to 47 against against Floyd, Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera so you know there there's lots of uh there's sort of lots of evidence on both sides but in very very few cases very few you know roughly one out of every five i think steve came up with around 20 different examples um and only four or five of them did the fighter who was coming up in weight have a height and reach advantage over what is assumed to be bigger fight. Hmm. So I, I I think that is that is telling. I mean, we're not just trying to dig up statistics to justify why this is a competitive fight. I think that is meaningful. So um I think that the better question is how at his height and reach and frame has Jamil been able to be successful and at 154 for as long as he has? Because I, I think what we're gonna see is that he's going to look pretty natural i don't think he's going to be 168 probably somewhere mid 160s low to mid 160s i mean we'll we'll all find out on fight night but i don't think you know there are going to be differentiators they're going to be you know points of leverage uh between the two fighters i don't think high uh i don't think weight and size is going to be one of them um, i just don't think that's going to be a factor in the fight
2: Hey, you—you you do a pretty decent Steve Farhood impression. You know, <laughs> rattling <laughs> off uh, fights and examples—that was not—not not bad, not bad. You, you maybe you have a future. Uh, you know, on the, on the it, other side it, of the yeah. camera. That's right. <laughs> um, look, it's been,
1: I think, unquestionably a great year for boxing. And although the three of us are not exactly unbiased, I think it's clear that Showtime Boxing has been killing it. Um, what do you think is behind? it being such a successful year, so many great fights being made. Is it just one of those cases where sometimes the stars align and we've got the right fighters at the right weights at the right time? Or to come back to a point that you made about Crawford and Spence, are you finding that the fighters themselves are putting more effort into, say, we want our advisors out the way, we want these fights
0: to happen, let's make them happen? Um, I, I think it's a combination of, of two things. I, without, um, without a doubt, there, there is an element of a little bit of luck you know, um, you know certainly Tank versus Ryan could have come together last year. Spence Crawford could have come together last year. It just happened that these things, you know, came together all in a, you know, sort of short window, which sort of, you know, probably increases the the impact when you have just got big fight after big fight. So there's a little bit of luck in in timing, um, but I I do think there's a a, a bit of a shift, um, and I, I think what's become clear to fighters, um, and to the other stakeholders in the sport is that, you know, this is a different sort of television market or, or call it an attention market, um, you know, with everything that's out there. I mean, now you can, you know, it doesn't matter how obscure your sport is. You can find a subscription. You can find someone who's airing it or streaming it. You know, there's more different sports, uh, more different types available, you know, everywhere, virtually 24 hours a day, not to mention the, you know, the glut of non-sports programming, you know, from uh, streamers and everything else, you know. So it's it's clear that attention um, is at a premium. Like there's a huge battle in all of media just for people's attention. So I think what's become clear and really has sunk in with, I think, most people is, for boxing to really flourish, to to for it to take the place that it should, the proper place in, in the environment, there there really isn't um, there really isn't any leeway for them for us to say not to put our best forward forward regularly. You know, because anything short of the best fights is just not going to get attention. Um, you know, we see that in you know, and you can say it about college football you can say it about an nba you can say it about all the other things you know when you the big fights the big events are bigger and the the not big events are smaller i mean you've just got this extreme i mean you see it um not to go on a tangent i mean you see it in movies um mm. you know everything seems like it's either a massive blockbuster or it just doesn't really make an impact and it's sort of like that's a little bit of the world we're living in. Like We need to make those massive blockbusters as frequently as possible for the sport to maintain its level of attention among the consumer. Talking of which, while we've got
1: you here, any updates on some of our other bigger fighters? You mentioned Tank. Obviously, he's now dealt with those uh, sideline issues that he had, so mm-hmm. he can presumably be back at some point. David Benavides. we've been hearing talks about a Demetrius Andrade. Matchup, anything you can let us in on at all?
0: Sure. Um, you know, there are definitely discussions going on for um for Benavidez. Um, you know, he he's made it real clear he wants to get back in before the end of the year. Um and uh, you know, I, I, I feel optimistic about the Andre fight. You know, certainly not made yet, but it's it you know, it's trending in that direction. Um don't have a date, don't have a site yet, but I I think you know that's a a fantastic fight for both of them. I think it's a it makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um tank, you know, it remains to be seen. Uh, you know, obviously he, you know, had was away from the gym to put it uh, to use a euphemism um for uh for quite a while. Um and whether you know he's ready physically to be back um in a big fight before the end of the year or not, not remains to be seen. Well we'll we'll have to see that. But there's certainly um you know still some some big fights coming before the end of the year. That's for sure. All
2: right. Last topic. Uh, It it has long been a maxim in boxing that as the heavyweight division goes, so goes the sport. Um, But we've had this great year as we were just discussing without any indication that the heavyweight champion is going to make a meaningful defense or attempt to unify the belts. Does this mean that the heavyweights are no longer so essential to the health of the sport or, or that the maxim was always kind of false or, in the long term, do we indeed need to see the big boys get their act together?
0: Um, look, I, I don't believe, personally, I don't believe that it's a, a requirement, a necessity, you know, in order for the sport to to thrive, that you need an active uh, heavyweight division. Um, and by that, you know, what, what people typically mean is, at least, you know, from our perspective, you know, an active American heavyweight who's, mm. who's there, or at least someone who, has a, a big American presence. You know, the Klitschkos were obviously not American, but they fought here relatively frequently that the people were interested. Um so it's certainly not a requirement, but but from my perspective, um, it adds a lot of juice when when they are. Um look, I, I do think uh you know there's a possibility we see um, Wilder before the end of the year. Um and uh look that was it was an action packed trilogy with with Fury, um, win, lose, or draw, I think he, you know he is uh, certainly must see TV. Um, and so, you know, yes i i would like to I'd like to have a uh, active heavyweight division um, that you know that was uh, appealing to the U.S. audience. I think we're in a sort of a transition phase. Um, we're we're getting to the end of. Um, you know, of, of sort of one generation and starting the other. Now I'm, I'm not trying to kick anybody out of the ring. Um, but you know, we are we're we're seeing I think the tail end certainly of Tyson Fury. Um, but I, I think what we do need is to start identifying that next generation of heavyweights. That's really where I think the excitement will come because you know there there can be, I mean, Wilder Josh was still a big fight and absolutely. Um without a doubt. And there are other big fights out there as well. But I also think that you know it's it's going to be necessary to start building that next generation to build that level of excitement. Yeah.
2: I, I guess I sort of lied about that being the last topic. I have an, <laughs> another uh, sort of related topic uh, to, to end on. Um, Fury, his fight with Angano is going to be in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Anthony Joshua has fought there. Jake Paul has fought there. There are rumors of the big heavyweight doubleheader landing there. Saudi Arabia clearly sees boxing and golf and soccer and formula one, perhaps tennis as an important component of its sports washing efforts. What are your thoughts on this situation from the vantage point of someone who holds a lot of power
0: in the sport of boxing? Um, but to be completely candid, I'm, I'm not completely comfortable with it. Um, you know, we, we have not gone over to Saudi Arabia. Um, I know there's a lot of arguments there. Um, you know, on both sides, you know, and, and it's not as if, uh, you know, sports is is the only area where, you know, the Saudis are active, um, investors, um, you know, they, they have a large position in a lot of us industries and, you know, there are other sports that, you know, are engaging in territories where there are human rights violations as well. Um, but you know, for that, for that personally, um, it is, um, you know, it, it is uncomfortable there. I mean, that's why we haven't been over there. Um, having said that, you know, particularly in combat sports, it's hard to to sort of stand in the way of someone trying to maximize their money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I don't blame it. If you're going to put your life on your line, you certainly want it to be for the maximum revenue that you can possibly generate. Uh, I don't think it's particularly a great development for the sport uh, to see a lot of big fights go over there, um, you know, just because the accessibility and the uh, the time zone and all of those challenges. Um, so, look, do, do I think we'll be over there pretty soon? Like, I I don't have plans to. I, I don't see that. Um, but by the same token, look, um, you know, it's hard to criticize uh, you know, someone who who makes that choice. You know, an individual fighter. Um, if it's sort of life changing money, um, I get it. I, I love to see people stick to in- integrity and, you know, turn down money on, you know, for, uh, for the sake of integrity, but, you know, in combat sports, it's, um, you know, it's a different calculus.
2: Yeah. I mean, you just described me and Karen, our whole careers, we've just been turning down the big money because of our integrity <laughs>
0: over and over that's again. Right.
2: That's the only reason so we're not rich. Money yeah, uh... So many
0: Principles yeah. above <laughs> above everything
1: for you guys, right. I exactly, <laughs> precisely. Uh, hey, Stephen, look, thank you very much, and Dave, really appreciate you putting some time aside. And again, Rebias but congratulations on what's been an amazing year so far. And here's to a good
0: rest of twenty twenty three. Stephen, well, I thank appreciate you so much.
2: that. See you guys soon. All right, our thanks again to Stephen. Um, I I appreciate especially him not ducking the Saudi Arabia question at the end because okay. obviously it, it's a complicated one. He probably could have said you know what, guys, I, I'd rather not discuss that. There's a, a corporate line to toe, uh, But instead, he gave us his honest personal take, which which was great. Um, also, it it occurred to me as he was talking about Bud Crawford backstage before the fight, it crossed my mind something I wanted to ask him, and then I didn't find a good spot to squeeze it in. But I suddenly became curious whether Steven knew about Eminem in advance, and if so, how oh, far in advance. So. Yes,
1: I briefly thought about that as well, and then <laughs> yeah. just, just
2: based, yeah. Oh, well, sorry, sorry to the listeners and to uh, each of us for not getting that scoop. Um, <laughs> all right, let's remain on the topic of Showtime boxing as we've turned to our post-fight analyses of Saturday's triple header from the MGM National Harbor in Oxon Hill, Maryland, where in the main event, Emmanuel Rodriguez dropped Melvin Lopez three times in the 12th round to punctuate a dominant performance and earn a unanimous decision. All three judges giving him all 12 rounds for scores of 120 to 105 across the board. The win lifts Rodriguez to 22 and two with 13 KOs and drops Lopez to 29 and two with 19 KOs. You and I were both very high on Rodriguez following his extremely impressive 10 round technical decision win over Gary Antonio Russell last time out. Kieran were you similarly impressed with his outing against Lopez? And uh, afterward, he expressed an interest in facing Alexandro Santiago, whom we all just saw outpoint Donito Denaire. How do you like that fight, And and who would you pick right now? I do like that fight. I favor Rodriguez going in,
1: but I was ever so slightly disappointed in his outing on Saturday, and maybe hmm. that's a ridiculous thing to say. He won every round. He scored three knockdowns in the final round. But you know although he was tremendously accurate and you know gradually sort of drive lopez shell i, I just sort kind of felt he wasn't quite performing to his full potential and maybe that's just on me maybe that's the problem um such as it is when you produce a terrific performance like he did against russell anything that isn't quite that amazing feels a bit underwhelming and maybe that's mm-hmm. just not fair I did think early on that Rodriguez was going to finish Lopez off. I thought in the second round, honestly, I thought, oh, here we go. This is going to be another short, short fight. Uh, he rattled him, snapped his head back a bit there. Um, but after that, he sort of eased off the gas a little. He was he was focusing on quality of punches rather than quantity. Whereas against Russell, he seemed to have the right balance of of the two. Um, he was landing beautifully. He was landing cleanly. He was controlling the fight in every conceivable way but it was also hard not not to escape the feeling that he was allowing Lopez to hang around a bit. And given that growing hematoma um, that Mm. he had on his head, I would have thought he would have shown a bit more, more urgency, to be honest. But, um, you know, the second half of the contest was falling into a pattern in which I even made a note that it almost felt as if both men had entered this sort of kind of silent contract. You know, Lopez agreeing to retreat and concede defeat if Rodriguez agreed not to knock him out. And then Rodriguez passed like in the 12th round. Um, I don't know look, not all fights are the same, not all fights can be artist as artistically impressive as they are efficient, and maybe my expectations were a little bit high, but I did feel as if Rodriguez was holding a little in reserve, but all of that said, I've now been far too negative about what was a very dominant performance. He boxed beautifully at times, his punch accuracy was tremendously impressive, and on the outside of that hematoma, there was nothing at any stage to suggest he was in any danger of losing, so I'm probably being unfair. Maybe I was so busy hoping we'd have a third early KO that I felt that right. it didn't <laughs> arrive and I had to stay watching for another 40 minutes. But um,
2: maybe I am being a guy who
1: probably made a pretty good case to be the best active bantamweight in the world right now, I think.
2: Yeah, Uh. I mean, I have one criticism of his performance myself, which is that I would have liked to have seen more combination punching from him. It was a lot of one punch at a time. Um. I think he could have gotten the knockout, maybe even by the mid rounds, if he'd put his punches together more. And I personally wanted him to get the knockout because I may have wagered a pizza on Rodriguez by KO at attractive plus 240 odds, which made the final minute of the fight uniquely torturous for me. Uh, <laughs> I thought Lopez wasn't getting up from that first body shot knockdown. He was on the knee until nine and a half. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought maybe the ref was going to wave it off immediately on the third knockdown. Uh, but of course, once he didn't, all that Lopez had to do was get up and the fight was over and it wasn't going to be a KO. So a bit of an unlucky loss there for me. So it's hard to come any closer than that to winning a KO bet and not win it. But um but it's OK. I will have a happier betting story uh, coming up in a few minutes.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, the co-main was another Gary Antoine Russell blowout. Uh, the last remaining unbeaten Russell brother moved to 17-0 with 17 KOs with his eighth first round knockout in a junior welterweight contest. Um, we figured Kent Cruz would not have enough to avoid a KO defeat. But it happened even faster than we expected. Um, Cruz started complaining to referee Bill Clancy about something, uh, presumably a headbutt, although replay showed he was cracked by a left uppercut from from Russell. But while Cruz was looking at Clancy, Russell did what he's supposed to do. He just kept punching, Mm -hmm. dropping Cruz with another left hand. And then once the fight resumed, Russell just tore into Cruz again. And a digging body shot put him down for the count and dropped his record to 16-1-3 with 10 KOs. Not very
2: impressive from Cruz. Russell did exactly what he had to do. Anything at all we can learn from this? Uh, Honestly, not much. Uh, Maybe the biggest takeaway is just that the matchmaking on Showtime is, in fact, not totally infallible. Um, We both (laughs) uh, identified Cruz as probably not being up to the task here. Others I saw on social media said the same thing. Even though their records were similar, this kind of looked like a mismatch, and it was. Which, you know, it happens, but clearly... Cruz did not belong in the same ring as Russell and it wasn't just well he got caught by a shot from a puncher these were two different ability levels now Russell just may be special you know he he just may be a future yeah. champion um, I'm not seeing anything to make me think he isn't uh, as you said he's the last remaining unbeaten Gary Russell and it's possible he'll end up. Uh, looked back upon as the best of them you know still a long way to go to surpass his older brother of course the the one not known by a middle name um but you know not much to analyze in this fight Antoine has power we knew that he can hit to the body we saw that uh Cruz didn't make weight so maybe something fell short in his training and he was extra susceptible to body shots I don't know I mean the most dramatic moment of this fight was when a timeout was called before the first punch was yeah. thrown because Antoine forgot to take his earring out. Um, and then the, the post-fight interview was entertaining. These are just such likable guys. Not much else to say. Uh, I guess the question now is how fast to move him. He's 27, so not old, but not young either for a guy with 17 fights. Uh, he's handled the Postoles and the Barthelemes. I'd like to see him step up to a contender who isn't nearing the end of his career. 140 is a deep division, and there are lots of fellow up-and-comers I'd be very eager to see Russell tested against. Uh, Richardson Hitchens, Elvis Rodriguez, Montana Love, maybe Kenneth Sims Jr. I'd like to see Russell in a fight next where you can make a case for predicting the other guy gets the win.
1: It's so difficult, isn't it, when you've got a guy like Russell who knocks people out. He's he's seventeen and zero. He's probably only got thirty professional rounds under his belt. It's it's right. so difficult, isn't it, balancing that. How fast do you move them? You know, when do you challenge them? But yeah, it it definitely does feel as if uh, uh, it's time for him to start really making a play at one hundred and forty. And I agree with you about. I just really enjoyed that post fight interview with the (laughs) two of them. Uh, And and I love Mr. Gary Russell, our buddy. Uh, They're they're
2: just, like you said, really, really likeable people. Uh, You mispronounced the Mr. in front of his name. Can you say it properly, please? Excuse me. Mr. Gary Russell Jr. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. There you go. (laughs) Uh, In the opening bout, uh, Gabriel Maestre remained unbeaten by taking the O from Trayvon Marshall in spectacular fashion, knocking out the youngster in round two of a scheduled 10 rounder in the welterweight division. The fight started as a, at a fast pace and remained there for as long as it lasted until Maestre backed Marshall toward the ropes and uncorked a right hand that sent him halfway through the ropes. Somehow, Marshall made it to his feet and he tried to fight back, he even landed one real good counter shot, but he couldn't keep the 37-year-old two-time Olympian off him. And another knockdown through the ropes prompted the stoppage at 2.07 of the second round. With the win, Maestre improves to 6-0-1 with five stoppages, while the 22-year-old Marshall tastes defeat for the first time, falling to 8-1 and with seven KOs. Kieran, how did Maestre pull this off, and does this help erase the stench around his highly controversial win over Michael Fox? The stench should never really evaporate from that decision, which was so bad that one of the judges was
1: suspended by the relevant alphabet body Oh though as much for racist tweets as their terrible judging but yes. maybe less of it adheres to maestray um although again as with the co i'm not entirely sure how much we learned from this i think this may have been as much an example of marshall despite having more pro bouts than maestray just simply not having the experience for a fight at this level you know that maybe this right. is the flip side of what we're talking about this is what happens when you move someone maybe a smidge too fast uh he fell for that feint. That opened him up to the right hand that knocked him down. And he recovered very well from that knockdown. I thought there was no way he was going to get up from that. Um, he was in territory he just hadn't been in before, and he was caught in holding and fighting back. And like you said, there was a moment where I thought, oh my god, he's caught in him. This is gonna be a great fight back. But he wasn't quite unable to he wasn't quite able to do either. And yeah, this is a bit of a risk that you take when you want to push a young fighter but not push him too much. But I do wonder if this was more martial not quite being ready than telling us too much about my a straight but mm-hmm. having sad, performances like that don't go unnoticed and the welterweight division is jockeying for position and
2: opportunities behind the uh, pound for pound number one and
1: it's just gonna help him get opportunities a performance like that
2: yeah for sure um so I, I told you i had another betting story a happier one and uh, and oh, yeah. this is it uh every now and then the odds makers tell me with their pricing that they don't really know this sport all that well. And and this was one of those fights where either I knew something they didn't or they knew something I didn't because I found on DraftKings midweek, Astray as a plus 450 underdog. That was shocking. I mean, even if it were plus 200, I probably would have pounced on that kind of price. Um, I know he deserved to lose to Fox, but you know, that's a tough style matchup. And Marshall was just so untested and unproven There's just no world in which Maestrade should have been a plus 450 underdog. And um, when I checked again, just before the fight started, he was plus 500. Um, I I wish I'd thrown another pizza on it at that price. Um, But I have to admit, when I saw that the number had gone up, I got worried that indeed they knew something I didn't. So I didn't bet on it a second time. But I did get myself a nice little bankroll boost there. Uh, And and the result also gave me a slight boost in our picks contest. Uh, We both took... Rodriguez to beat Lopez in the main event, although we both picked a stoppage. So we each get only one point for that one. We get two apiece for the co main, as we were correct in picking Russell to stop Cruz, although neither of us went for a first round blowout. Uh, but the opener was where I widened my lead just a bit. We both picked split decisions, but I picked Maestre while you went for Marshall. So I get one point to your zero, which means I now lead 66 64. Just where I want you. I knew you were going to say that. I know, uh, I know. Is there is there a lead big enough for you to decide? I mean, two points really is close enough that I accept that maybe you actually believe that. What's what's the limit at which uh, at which you would concede? Uh oh, I don't have him where I want him. We'll never know because you'll never have a lead that big. <laughs> I feel I feel like maybe I did one year at one point. No, no nonsense. <laughs> <All> right, anyway. <laughs> Uh, Moving on, we have a couple of other big fights, non-Showtime fights, to recap from Saturday. First in London, Anthony Joshua scored his first KO in two and a half years when he stopped late replacement Robert Hellenius with a single right hand in the seventh round. Joshua took some criticism just for taking on Hellenius after Dillian White tested positive for PEDs, given that the Nordic Nightmare had been knocked out inside a round by Deontay Wilder last year. And some of the fans in the arena booed AJ's patient approach through the first six rounds. Kieran, what did you think of the choice of the opponent and then of the performance? And uh, Eddie Hearn all but confirmed that the matchup with Wilder is being looked at for Saudi Arabia in January. Is Joshua ready for that fight? To take the last
1: part first, I think it's significant that just about the first comment from Joshua post-fight was that he wants to keep busy and he wants to Mm -hmm. fight twice more this year. He knows he's essentially rebuilding under Derek James, and I think he wants more rounds to become more comfortable with what Derek is teaching him. But you know, look, if the Wilder fight does get signed for Saudi Arabia and presumably for a lot of money, it's difficult to imagine that those involved are going to be thrilled with the idea of him taking an interim fight right? because he could get injured or even lose and, and throw those plans in turmoil. So if that fight does get made and it sounds like it might happen before we next podcast, you know, then that that's what it's going to be, I think. Look, on the one hand, you can argue Look, this is, this is a former heavyweight titleist. He's been a professional for 11 years. He shouldn't still require building up step by step. But even with an Olympic gold, he doesn't have a lot of amateur experience. He doesn't have a lot of rounds under his belt in the grand scheme of things. And you can see that some movements still aren't very fluid. You can see him still thinking in the ring. So do I think he's ready for Wilder? No, I don't. Because some. it seems now that he requires a bit of time to get going, to feel fully mm-hmm. confident, to really sort of let his hands go, to get into the rhythm. Deontay's not going to give him that time. He's going to come out swinging and Joshua's going to have to fight him. He's going to have to just dig his toes in and swing back. And I don't know how that's going to go. I suspect I know how that's going to go. <laughs> right. um, I just I just don't feel like that's the right fight for him right now. But um, as for the fight on Saturday itself, look, I think Hellenius was a perfectly good opponent for such short notice. Um, just because Wilder knocks you out and around doesn't mean everyone else should. Um, in the end, the result is what matters. I suspect Derek was largely happy with how things went. AJ got round in. he became progressively more confident in what Derek was telling him. And he ended the show, of course, with a beautiful knockout punch. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. Clearly, Derek is trying to mold him into a more complete boxer. And there were signs that that isn't something he's yet entirely comfortable with. He's having to think about it a bit too much in the in the ring, but the way the fight ended showed that there's some value in that. I think he set up that knockout punch really well mm-hmm. because it wasn't just the punch out of the blue. He was working behind the jab. And in particular, he proceeded that right hand with my favorite punch, the jab to the body. George Foreman right. was smiling. If he was watching, I'm sure, <laughs> Um, you know, uh, you could tell that he didn't quite have the confidence. He was standing a bit too far away from Hellenius for much of the fight. His feet didn't follow his body, you know, for, for the first six rounds or so he wasn't generating quite the talk he wanted to. Um, I guess how you feel about the fight and about his performance depends on what, is, what your expectations of him are, really. And, you know, I actually even quite like, even though some of his post-fight comments and behaviours are becoming a bit strange, I actually didn't mind his spiky response of people need to leave me alone and when I'm in the ring and doing my thing or or something to that effect, which on the one hand suggests he's just being overly defensive about criticism, but right. I, also, I also thought I heard a little bit of defiance and like, I'm going to do what I need to do to win. So... Unbalance, I think, is a perfectly fine win. I really wanted to have another fight before Wilder, but I guess we're not gonna see that.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm pretty well aligned with you on, on this. I mean, Helenius struck me going in as the right opponent for AJ on short notice, you know, a credible name, but not really a threat. His whole late career resurgence was built on wins over Adam Kanatki, who was never really worthy of his hype. This was a perfect opponent for AJ as long as he got Helenius out of there, which he eventually did. But The way it went, I didn't see anything to prevent me from predicting a wilder KO if and when they fight. Uh, AJ still has that tentativeness. It felt from the very start, like if he just opened up and threw serious punches, he would get Hellenius out of there. But he waited until he had a bloody nose and a swollen eye before getting it done. Joshua has tremendous gifts, obviously still has a lot of power because he didn't even catch him perfectly with that right hand. Yeah. It, it landed in the right spot on Hellenius's chin, but kind of slightly into the follow through of the punch, not quite at the perfect extension point. Um, so the, the power is there, but I don't know, As as flawed as Wilder is and always has been, everything I saw from AJ here leads me to believe Wilder will knock him out while Joshua is standing there contemplating what punch he may possibly <laughs> want to be throwing soon.
1: Yeah, agreed. Um, Meanwhile, also on Saturday, uh, in Glendale, Arizona, an all-Mexican battle of junior lightweights saw Emmanuel Navarrete defeat Oscar Valdez by unanimous decision in a pretty exciting one-sided fight, Um, Mm -hmm. one which left Valdez with a nasty-looking right eye. Uh, Scores were 116-112, 118-110, and 119-109, and the last two scores in particular were uh, a little too wide for a lot of folks. Um, Eric, you were excited about this fight from the moment it was announced. Did it meet your
2: expectations? What did
1: you think of the scores?
2: So I'll I'll address the scores quickly because I I don't want to make them the main story here. I I did think two of them were a bit too wide. I had it 116-112, although Navarrete was outworking Valdez in every single round. So, you know, 118-110 at least, that's somewhat understandable. Um, But to me, there's no sense in, in dwelling on the scoring here. Clearly, the right guy won. I'm not deeply offended in this instance by the scores being a bit of a reach did the fight meet my expectations? Yeah, overall, um, it was nonstop action, nonstop guts and effort. Uh, Valdez never stopped trying, despite almost a Carmen Basilio-esque plum on the eye. Um, it was a little more lopsided than it was in my dreams, you know. Uh, they, they kept showing us Barrera and Morales at ringside, and. One thing about their trilogy is that all those fights were razor close. Even the third one, which was the only one that had a clear and non-controversial victory, it was still damn close and and was undecided with a round or two to go. So this one, it lived up to expectations, but it it wasn't an all-time classic that we'll be telling our grandkids about because there was such a clear winner, and that winner led all the way. It wasn't even the fight of the year, I wouldn't say. As good as it was... I think Mungia Derevyanchenko remains the front runner there. And this is somewhere in the top five, not necessarily even number two or number three. But, you know, I I don't want to sound like I'm crapping on the fight. It was was a tremendous battle Um, like Spence Crawford. If it was a bit disappointingly one sided. I'm inclined to give the credit for that to the winner, who was magnificent. Um, I will quote my uh, podcasting ex-wife, Bill Detloff, to help explain the brilliance of Navarrete. Bill wrote on some once kind of cool social media site uh, that I will not name. Every fighter watching Navarrete, quote, sign the contract. I'll wreck this MF. Two rounds in, quote, WTF, question mark, exclamation point. (laughs) Um, Now, that that wasn't the case with Liam Wilson. Uh, In that one, it was Navarrete saying WTF, but it often does apply, and it certainly applied here. Valdez just couldn't get inside on him, never knew where the punches were coming from, and couldn't find a lull in Navarrete's punching during which he could attack. You, You could see him all throughout the fight looking like he's about to pull the trigger. And then suddenly a four punch combination <laughs> flies his way. Navarrete's awkwardness was such a weapon here. And I thought Valdez's corner was telling him the right things to be patient and look for the opportunity for a counter left hook, but he just couldn't find a spot to make his punching power, turn the fight around. Um, last note that I, I want to hit on this is that the, the broadcasters were talking about a rematch afterward um, again, Barrera-Morales comparisons at all times, uh, talking about this was so great, let's make it a trilogy. I don't really see the need for a rematch. I I don't see how it's much different. I think now having seen it for 12 rounds, Navarrete is all wrong for Valdez. This was an excellent fight. It lived up to my expectations, but it didn't exceed my expectations and my sense is once is enough. All right.
1: Uh, Time now for the news. But you know what? There's actually very little of it this week. So we'll just rush through... Just a couple of items. The biggest news of the week would have been the announcement of Robert Hellenius as Anthony Joshua's new right. opponent. But, well, that's all done and dusted. So I guess the next biggest item, probably a new date for the light heavyweight clash between Arthur Beterbiev and Callum Smith, which had been scheduled for this coming Saturday, but was postponed after Beterbiev underwent dental surgery. The new date is January 13th, and that fight will still be in Quebec City. Uh, what else? Honestly, not much. Uh, Floyd Mayweather has had some things to say about Super Bantamweight King and number 1B, pound-for-pounder in Noria Inouye, and also about recently dethroned welterweight titleist Errol Spence. While calling Inouye a hell of a fighter, a hell of a fighter, he told Fight Hype that what I would like to see is if he could fight Gervonta at a catchweight. That'd be a hell of a fight. As a reminder, Inouye has just moved up to 122 pounds. Davis is 135 and sometimes fights at 140. Uh, Mayweather, it should be noted, is Davis's close advisor and former promoter. Um, Mayweather also said that Spence shouldn't be fighting at welterweight or even junior middleweight, but middleweight or super middleweight. That's just my honest opinion, he said. Uh, And finally, uh, Caleb Plant revealed what was behind his slapping Jamal Jamal Charlo backstage at the Crawford Spence weigh-in two weeks ago. Uh, Speaking on Instagram Live, Plant says Charlo kept tugging on his beard I'm calling him a, quote, bitch ass white boy uh, said plan. I got my wife standing behind me and I'm in a room full of my peers. I mean, what do you do? You're making it real hard on a guy. Um, look, Eric, I know you've been in that same situation as planned many, many times. Um, <laughs> yes.
2: Any thoughts on that or any of those uh, news items? I do have a beard and I am a white boy. Uh, that's about where the similarities between me and Caleb Plant end. Uh, I mean, nobody's ever called me a bitch ass white boy. Because they don't have to. Because we all know that's what I am. Uh, you don't need to say it. We all know. Uh, I don't know. As as Steven Espinoza reminded us, Jamal has been going through some stuff. That whole scene was unfortunate, though yeah. it will help to sell a Plant Charlo fight if that comes to pass. Um, as for Better BF Smith, they have a new date. Good. It's a reasonable fight, but, you know, BetterBF Bevel is the fight that matters. And now, best case scenario, it's like nine months away and BetterBF is 38 years old. The clock is ticking. Um, as for Mayweather's comments, we agree on one thing. Uh, I, too, think Inouye is a hell of a fighter, hell of a fighter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you can't take him seriously when he suggests Tank, who is a lightweight against Inouye, who is, as you said, 122 pounds and just rose to that weight. Forget the catchweight suggestion. Tank, by all accounts, can't possibly make 130 anymore. If Tank is still at 135, if and when Inouye gets to 130, maybe then they can talk. Uh, now, that said, I don't care how much smaller Inouye is. If they signed that fight tomorrow for 135 pounds and Way came in somewhere in the mid to high 120s or whatever and was giving away 15 pounds in the ring on fight night or something, I do agree with Floyd that it's still a fascinating fight. Um, in a way, has other options and, and shouldn't need to do something like that. But I kind of want to give Floyd credit in that it is a valid and very creative matchmaking idea. Um, but there's no way in hell it happens anytime soon. And I disagree with him about Spence. Uh, I think he may as well try on 154 before jumping straight to 160. His strength was so important to his success at 47. I want to see how he fares at 54, but. Again, I guess credit to Floyd for tossing out some interesting thoughts. He's, he's not just stating the obvious, you know, other than deeming, in a way, a hell of a fighter, hell of a fight. <laughs> and
1: I actually have absolutely nothing to add to any of that of that news segment whatsoever. So let's not delay. Let's just okay. keep on going.
2: Yeah, we? let's roll.
1: Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. It
2: is uh, fight game time, old chap.
1: All are right. You, uh, are, are you ready after a... For a wee uh, suspension, for a week or two, like yeah, be we've
2: missed We've missed a couple of weeks. I could be rusty. That's my excuse if I don't do it well on it. We're rusty.
1: Okay, there you go. And and this <laughs> time I will list you all the usual kind of preambles, and we'll just get right into it. <laughs> okay. All right. These two boxers entered the ring with records of thirty-six and ten, and twenty-four and seventeen. Hardly anything to suggest greatness, and yet they emerged. With the ring magazine fight of
2: the year wow okay those are unusual oh i think i know it i think i'm gonna get a one this week you might you might (laughs) so uh before i give it away totally and uh, i guess i'll end up bleeping this if i am correct which i'm pretty sure i am uh the 36 and 10 i thought i knew who that was immediately and then the 24 and 17 i was like Oh no, that's, that's, uh, I don't know who that would be. And then, and so I started thinking about, so I'll I'll stop being vague. Uh, I, there will be some bleeps (laughs) in here. The 36 and 10, I immediately thought of. (laughs) And the 24 and 17, I started rethinking that that sounded like a Freddie Pendleton kind of record, but then I came back around and realized, Oh no, wait, that was (laughs) record. And that was the ring fight of the year. So do I have it correct? Is it. You do indeed um i i i was struggling
1: to come up with a fight and at first i thought i don't know about this fight it's a little bit obscure but then i thought it's <laughs> it's not obscure to me right actually this this could be a gimme for eric here but well yeah. done yes uh, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly
2: yeah yeah that right. was a little bit a little bit of a layup for me but probably the average uh boxing fan it, it may have been a little more challenging but okay so the listeners have presumably at this point heard a bunch of bleeps and bloops over top of various (laughs) people's names. Um, Although they probably heard Freddie Pendleton's name in there. I wouldn't have had to bleep that out. But uh, uh, so uh, what what are the remaining clues for those still playing along at home?
1: Okay. For the winner, it would be his first fight of the year selection, but it wouldn't be his last. In fact, he would win in the next two years for fights for which he is much better remembered. Mm -hmm. Number three... Teddy Atlas was on co commentary duties that night. See, that's like giving you an idea of when it is. Right, so, right. You know, so nice, subtle little thing. And declared halfway through the scheduled junior welterweight 10 rounder. See, the information's just coming out very mm-hmm. nicely.
2: Uh-huh, I like it. We're not in Manila, but this is the thriller in Hampton <laughs> Beach. This is unbelievable. This is the point at which if you were a boxing fan at the time of this, you better have gotten yeah. it by clue three, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if you come along a little bit later then
1: you are completely excused for being very confused, I right. think. If if right. you're a younger fan or you didn't pick up the sport until, you know, it's like the mid two thousands or something. I would not blame you if you were like, What the hell fight is this? <laughs> right. Uh clue number four, the loser retired amazingly ten years after this fight mm. with a record of 38, 34 and six, and a cult following. The winner retired after his third successive fight of the year with a record of 38 and 13 and a cult following.
2: (laughs) I like that clue. All right.
1: And number five was, say what you want about my people and alcohol. But this was one occasion on which the Irishman vanquished the drunken master
2: <laughs> nice all right yeah. and so if somehow you made it to the end uh, still not having put it together uh it was uh mickey ward over emmanuel burton was he emmanuel burton or emmanuel augustus at i think the he time? was burton at the time okay okay he was still emmanuel burton and he soon became emmanuel augustus uh but uh yeah the 2001 fight of the year 2001, right? july 13th 2001 at hampton beach casino in hampton
1: beach new hampshire i almost wanted to put something in there like this has have been the only great like fight of the year in new hampshire but i couldn't know for certain (laughs) there can't have been a lot of them
2: right yeah that's uh that's that's probably i would not be surprised to learn this is the only ring fight of the year ever that ever took place in new hampshire but cannot cannot confirm that on the spot as definitely fact
1: all right. Well, you're welcome for the little layup there. You yes, didn't... I appreciate it. You might it. still be rusty by the time your turn comes around. You just <laughs> haven't got the reps in.
2: That's right. I like I was trying to shake some rust off and I got a first round knockout. And so um, but, you know, if I get, get a call, on, sh- line, <laughs> I was going to say, if I get a call on short notice to uh, face Anthony Joshua in seven days, I'll be I'll be ready. <laughs> there you go. All right.
1: Um, to finish off, let's return to our usual top five challenge schedule. No more of this both of us producing previously undisclosed lists nonsense. Um, (laughs) It is my turn to hit you with a challenge. It's a really straightforward one. This. Uh, I'm being very nice to you this week, actually. Um, We just saw Emmanuel Rodriguez win in his quest to be recognized as the best bantamweight in the world. My challenge to you is, who are your top five bantamweights in history? Mm, Simple as that.
2: All right. That's a
1: pretty storied division. It's been around a long time. Uh Plenty to choose from. Plenty of good fighters to choose from. Okay.
2: You're right that it is straightforward. Um, now, granted, a few weeks ago, I gave you top five welterweights in history, mm-hmm. which you can rattle off the top of your head, and you went with a smaller weight division that's a little more obscure. Made it a little tougher for me, but I won't complain. Still pretty straightforward and easy. And I uh, I, I look forward to doing a little research on the various bantamweight greats.
1: Yeah, likewise. I, that, that's the, the fun thing about some of these challenges is actually doing that and going, oh, yes. They, all right. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week to preview Alexander Usyk's heavyweight title defense against Daniel Dubois. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.